You're listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a Venice-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting motorsports today. Check out race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Aaron Mactia. Other co-hosts, you may have seen walking out of a great club with a big old smile on his face. You probably see him at a dirt track. He is a one and only Mr. Scott Bowie. Hello, Aaron. Or is my phone... So when when I'm when I'm driving and like you know when I've called you before like I hit the button and I say call Scott Bowie and my phone will say calling Scott Bow. <laughs> well, it's not the worst thing I've been called. Right, <laughs> right. Well, um, obviously this is a big week. We're you know a few days away from the biggest race of the world, Indy 500. Um, I've definitely been to the track. Most of the month, pretty much any day the track's open, I've been out there. Um, you've been out there, you know, a few days as well. And yeah, one of the greatest times of the year for sure. It really is. And uh, we uh, we actually took in the final day of qualifying. We sat there and watched that. Uh, what a great show that was. Scott Dixon duh, did what Scott Dixon does. And um, it, it never ceases to amaze me what he can do. Um, but all that will be covered in your, uh, race preview show. Unfortunately, I was not able to be a part of that. I had some other things I had to do, but, uh, Jagger Jones filled in, I'm sure keenly for me and did a great job. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, uh, seeing it like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when I was introducing everyone, like, you know, I was joking, like with Robbie, I was like, Jagger is sitting in for Scott, like literally sitting in the exact place where Scott would be sitting. Yeah, no, that's funny. Um, no, he was uh, gracious to be able to do it. And uh, thanks to him. And um, yeah, man, what an exciting time, like he said. And of course, we've got this week's guest, which is Little Al. And that's all you need to say. And, uh, man, he was so great to talk to. And, um, he saw, you know, he summed it up perfectly when he said, you just don't know what indie means. And boy, he's right. I mean, you just, it's hard to describe. Absolutely. And definitely, like you said, cats, the race preview show, because that's something we talk about with Robbie. Um, in the preview show, we have Robbie McGee. And we wanted to, and we have um, Jagger Jones, obviously, myself, and David Land. And we wanted to kind of split it up in two parts, where the first part, we talked with Robbie really kind of about his experiences in the 500. He talks a little bit about, um, so he actually drove USF 2000 cars, which I didn't realize. So him and Jagger kind of had a conversation about that, kind of how the cars are different now and, you know, different things like that. Um, but Robbie really talked a lot about like, you know, how much Indy really means to him. Um, and he was like, I'm just getting goosebumps just sitting here talking about it. So it's a really good conversation. Um, kind of gives you a different perspective from, you know, a driver's view of what, you know, of what Indy means to them. So like I said, definitely check out the race preview show. Um, and David Land, if you remember last year, he actually guessed who was going to win the race. So I was giving a lot of, um, <clears throat> I was giving him a, hard time about it saying you you picked it last year i said your whole marketing and branding from this year was from our show i said so if you don't guess it like you're screwed for next year that's right yeah no um 
So he just starts saying every single driver, and that way he can just drop. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, yeah, no, it's gonna be really interesting to, to watch. You know, I, I had such a fun time doing it last year, and uh, man, this week coming up is just gonna be special, and um, you know, and I don't know, it's just it's hard to talk about Andy for me sometimes. It's just uh, it means so much, and it, it's such a big deal. Uh, especially to someone like myself. So uh, I, I can't wait till this Sunday. I can't wait to watch the race. Uh, I can't wait to go watch IRP Friday and watch Jagger race and watch the midgets and silver crown cars run out there. And Saturday night, I'll be spotting for Shane Hollingsworth again uh, in the little 500. I've got, got a busy week planned. So uh, yeah, I just, I love this time of year. Absolutely. Scott Bowie. I think all of us are very busy during this time of year. So um, wouldn't trade it for anything. And man, it's a weird feeling like, and we can talk about this next week, but when there's just so much going on during the month and the day after the race, it just feels it's like sad. it's sad. No, you're exactly it's right. Sad. It's, like it, sadness. it's sad. It, and it's been like that for me since I was a little kid. It's, it's like, uh, it's, I won't say it's like a death, but it's like <laughs> right. something you would, it's like something you had been looking so forward to is over yeah. and you're just sad about it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, and then it just slowly starts building back up. And then, you know, by the time it comes around next year, you're ready for it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it like I'll go through a day or two, just kind of moping around, you know? Oh, Absolutely. So, um, like we said, obviously, this show is Alan's Jr. Next week, we are going to release um, Ted and Angela Savage, who Ted Warner, um, he's an author. He started the Be Miles Ahead Foundation or um, driving school. Um, and he, they were actually the first driving school to be inside the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I believe. And he started that with Stefan Gregoire, um, mm-hmm. which great conversation and obviously book author. He wrote a book with Angela, who is the um, daughter of um, Sweet Savage. And that mm-hmm. was really great conversation. And, and I definitely think everyone will enjoy that. It was definitely great to talk to them. Absolutely. And, it, you know, and these were two people I'd never met before. I really enjoyed the talk. They were um, gracious with their time. And she was very open about the, the things you go through when you go through what she did at such a young age. Um, and, you know, and it, you know, and what her family went through. And, um, so it, it was very, very interesting. I can't wait for people to see it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just another great show, uh, coming out next week. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to be able to have kind of three things, although I wasn't part of the race preview, but, uh, kind of three things and then we'll be doing a race review next week, um, that I definitely can't be a part of. So it, uh, man, just what a great time of year. Absolutely. And actually during this year, uh, or during this, the past couple of weeks, we actually, um, worked on a couple video projects as well that we will, we will be releasing in the coming weeks. I'm super excited about, I'm still working on them, but there, there's some good stuff in there for sure. Uh, I, I agree. And, and they're fun. And, uh, yeah, and I, I think it's uh, I think you've done a great job. Aaron did all the video work. Aaron's done all the 
cutting and mixing and I've, I've been able to see some of the roughs and it's, I, we hope people enjoy it. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just a, again man it's just a good time it's something good to see hey and before i forget i want to give a shout out to kevin lee and and uh jackson and his mom uh for the burger bash raising money um so it it was a it was at the usac offices last night and uh really kind of a good way to kick off the week and there were a lot of drivers there yeah yeah great turnout a lot of drivers there and I just want to give a huge attaboy shout out to him because it was, it was a great event. Absolutely. And the, um, the burger bass is something that I remember, man, almost as long as I can remember. I mean, they had it back in, I think Weldon's Panther days. I remember going to, so it was 2007, 2008. So it's definitely uh, tradition. Yeah. Um, it was on carb night before, but um, it's still, and I think it's great that they're doing it now, you know, right over here in Speedway, because before they did it 90, I think it was like the 96th street burger, the old restaurant they used to have over there on 96th street by, um, 465. Yeah. And that is where they had it. And, um, and I, I, I like, it's like they had prime 47, who's one of their sponsors come out do some catering and they had some food trucks there. And it was just such a great event. Can't wait to go back next year. They, uh, and for anybody who can remember, and we'll try to kind of maybe pump it a little more next year as leading up because they've got auction items and, and some really interesting things that they, they, you know, they offer up. So I, I would, anybody, if you can't go to it, please at least check out, um, as it's coming around and check out the auction items. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, like we said, I hope everyone enjoys the Allen Jr interview it was definitely great to have him on um and you know i definitely thought it was appropriate to release it this week leading up to the 500 30th anniversary of his win um so definitely very appropriate to release and you know we talked to him for a while and it was a very good conversation and i definitely um think everyone will enjoy and yeah thanks everyone for watching listening if you haven't already make sure you hit like and subscribe please do we we enjoy and please send questions and notes and and all those types of things because we enjoy reading those. So I wish everybody a great week. I wish, I hope everybody uh, has a great Memorial Day weekend and uh, hope you enjoy the race that's coming up because I will. Absolutely. I hope everyone enjoys and have a great week. Our guest today is a 1992 and 1994 Indianapolis 500 winner and the 1990 and 1994 Indy car champion. He is also a two-time IROC champion. We are joined by Alan Jr. Al, it's an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. You betcha. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Al. So obviously, I think everyone is kind of familiar with your family's history in racing, obviously how you got started in racing. Um, but at what point would you say in your life or in your career did you realize that like the Indy 500 was like your ultimate goal and what you really wanted to do? Oh, gosh, I was uh, pretty young, um, you know, watching dad win the Indy 500 in 1970. I was eight years old. It was on uh, closed circuit TV. Uh, my sisters and I were in Albuquerque at the Civic Auditorium. So it was on a big screen, <clears throat> on a big screen up there. And, and the car was just so beautiful and, and big. And, uh, and I went, oh, that's 
it's something that from, from that time forward um, was my ultimate goal was to, uh, to get to the Indianapolis 500, yeah. What was the first time, or how old were you when you actually first got in a, it was a cart that you first got into? It was like a quarter midget. Uh, no, it was go-karts there in Albuquerque. And um, it was the next year. It was, uh, I was nine years old and um, uh, just so happened that uh, a go-kart track was built just about a mile away from my house. And uh, honestly, when I look back at it now, it was a God thing you know, that, that, that all took place. And, uh, and so go-karts at that time was just, just beginning to gain popularity, uh, in the United States at that time. And so, um, yeah, once that go-kart track was built, I was just begging my dad and my mom to get me a go-kart so that I can go racing. So. Did that, uh, that track, was it one of those deals where you could only be there on race days or was it something you could just go to anytime and run? You could go there anytime uh, because they were, it was a business and it was a, a, a rental cart, uh, you know, business. And, and so, uh, yeah, it was open seven days a week and, and you could go there at any time. And so, you know, we, we did the, the rental carts there at first and, and it wasn't long at all before, uh, before we were we were racing the go karts, so how much time were you spending there a week? I mean, was it hours or? Well, yeah. If I could, if I could go up there every day after school, I would. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, um, dad didn't really. Dad, dad and mom, they they didn't really, uh, you know, spend a lot of money at, on the rental carts. You know, I, I did right. a little bit of that, but uh, uh, really, the 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 racing cart showed up almost straight away and and so we were up there racing the go-karts on on weekends which which was you know much faster than the rental carts were and so once once the racing cart showed up then then that was what we were doing full-time so so after go-karts you did um what was the first actual like race car you drove outside of go-karts was it the sprint cars or was it the super v it was sprint cars. I went from uh, from from racing go karts uh, when I was sixteen to a sprint car there locally in in Albuquerque, and uh, I actually got to race on the same racetrack that my dad and Uncle Bobby and 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 my uncle Jerry and my uncle Louie began their careers on. It was it was oh, called cool. Speedway Park. It was a a little quarter mile dirt oval. And, uh, and so it, it doesn't exist anymore. It's gone, but, uh, but yeah, I got to, I got to begin my career on the, on the same track that, uh, my dad did. So obviously, you know, at young you were, age, sorry, go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say you were a trailblazer even then, because it was rare that 16 year olds ran sprint cars back then. And now they all run sprint cars. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, there was, uh, the local sprint car club uh, tried to stop me from running because I was too young. They felt I was too young. And so um, uh, when we showed up there the, the very first night, um, they, they tried to stop me from driving, period. And, and they all got together, the drivers said, you know, let's see how he does in hot laps and, and let's just, you know, see see what what he does. And so I ran hot laps and they, 
they met again and they decided, okay, yeah, you know, he can, he can run tonight, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let him run tonight. And so, so I did, and I, I stayed out of trouble and that sort of thing that first night. And then the club guys, they got together and they voted on it and they voted for me not to be able to run again. And my dad was, was going, well, why? Well, he's 16 and the insurance it's the rule in the club was you had to be 18 years old because of insurance. Okay. And that's what they laid it on. And so dad went to the insurance company and goes, what's, what's the rule on the insurance company. And they said, as long as you have a valid driver's license, then, then you're covered on insurance. And I had a valid driver's license. Okay. And, uh, and so dad went to the club and he goes, Hey, it's not insurance. It's you guys, you know? And, uh, and so, um, they changed the rule and, uh, <laughs> and I was allowed to run because they honestly, they blamed it on the insurance and the insurance company said, no, he's covered. So, uh, so I began racing. Obviously, like your goal, I mean, before that was always to race at Indy and obviously going from go-karts to sprint cars on dirt. I mean, that's a, a lot different than racing at Indy. So kind of what was kind of the mindset or the idea of doing that? Because, I mean, it's kind of going away from kind of your goal, what you're trying to do at that point. Well, okay. So <clears throat> my path was really laid out by my father. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all I was doing was following the same steps that he and Uncle Bobby took, okay? So uh, I ran sprint cars there. They, they ran what they called modified sprint cars because when they began, the actual sprint car wasn't, wasn't developed yet. It wasn't a two-frame. So it was, it was uh, something that, that developed later on. However, um, when I was 16, that, that, that same year, uh, dad took me up to Pikes Peak. And so um, I ran Pikes Peak or I tried to run Pikes Peak and uh, uh, it was too, it was too early for me to go up to Pikes Peak. I, I was so lucky I didn't hurt myself and crash and all that kind of stuff because I really didn't know what I was doing at all. And, uh, and so during qualifying at Pikes Peak that year, uh, my car broke. And so I didn't complete uh, qualifications. And so I missed the show, basically. And, and dad tried to get me to be a, a promoter's option. And, and they go, no, we don't do promoter's options. If you don't complete your qualifying run, you, you don't race. You miss the show. And so that very first year of it, Pike Speak. And thank God for that, because honestly, I was not ready for Pike Speak at all <laughs> in any way. And, and so, uh, that, yeah, that first year I missed the show and, and, uh, and then began, you know, running sprint cars again and, and getting more experience and, and more maturity. And then from the I'm not sure people today understand how important um, Pikes Peak was at that time. Pikes Peak was a, a very important event at that time and uh, had been for years. And I, I just don't think that people today truly understand what a big deal it was to run Pikes Peak. Yeah, quite honestly, you know, um, the next time I went to Pikes Peak, I was uh, 20 years old. Um, I would drove Uncle Bobby's Pikes Peak car and 
and we, we ended up being rookie of the year and, and, and I finished third in the, in the hill climb that, that year. Um, it is the slickest road course that I had run at the time. Okay. Um, uh, and that's exactly what it is. It's a road course that, that you go up and, and it's dirt and it's extremely slippery. And so you just had to really use your head and, and, and use car feel to, to get yourself up, up the road there on, on race day. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's honestly what it, and that's what it taught my dad and my uncle Bobby was, uh, was, was how to really how to drive a road course. So from doing the um, sprint cars, you went straight into the Super V, right? Yes. Yep. And I mean, at the time, I and I don't remember. So how many years were you in Super V for? Um, just one full year. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Um, in nineteen eighty, uh, I was just just graduating high school and that sort of thing, and and um, uh, we ran two races. The one was my very first Super V race was at Michigan. And then the second one was at the end of the season at Phoenix. I finished fourth at Michigan. And then when we got to Phoenix, we, we put it on the pole and won the race. And, and so uh, then it was, uh, it was 1981 that Rick Gallus hired me and, and he started a Super V team. And so um, that's when I started running road courses and and ovals it was that complete season so while in super v one of your big rivals was actually pete halsmer at the time right and yeah i always thought it was interesting because you were i forget how old you were but you were pretty young and he was almost like 40 i think he was older i don't know how old he actually was but yeah he had a lot of experience and he was he was older and um you know, he was one of my, my biggest competitors, you know, him and, and John Paul Jr. was, mm -hmm, uh, right. was in it. And so he was, he was really strong too. Do you think that, um, I mean, especially like, again, people today just don't realize how big super V's were at that time. And, um, but for you to come in and, and run so well immediately, uh, I mean, obviously it's a testament to your talent. I mean, what is it do you think that and I, I try to ask this in a way where it's not um it's not pandering what is it about what you think that you possess in your talent even starting at a young age that you could really apply that and and be so fast in everything you were driving i mean immediately it it pretty much it all started with the go-karts you know and and uh and my dad, you know, teaching me what, what, what a racing line is on a road course. That, that go-kart track was a road course. And so, uh, you know, he, he taught me how to, what an apex is without even saying the word. I, you know, the first time I had ever heard about an apex was, was when I went up to, to Bob Bondurant's school up at Sears Point, which is now uh, Sonoma Raceway and, and that sort of thing. And, and so... Um, you know, I hadn't had any official schooling. It was, it was all my dad, you know? And so, um, um, it was just, he, he worked with me and, and he just taught me how to do it, how to, how to have a racing line and, and 
that even went up into the snowmobiles when we would go racing the snowmobiles, um, going through the forest and stuff like that. You know, I could see what the line would be going through those those roads and and those logging roads and so on. And, and so it was just something that it, honestly it came natural to me. And so I was just uh, I was just trying to do the best job I could do. And uh, and with my dad's help and mentorship, um, you know, we just went at, at the pace that was comfortable with me. Like like when when we went from the go karts to the sprint car, you know, dad just said, let's just see how, how you do. And, and you know, if, if you can't control the car or whatever, then we'll choose something else for you to do. OK. And, and but, you know, I got in the sprint car and I went out and. And I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun and, and I just was able to adapt uh, to all the different cars that, that I ran. And, and it was something that, that you know, I, I truly worked on being able to adapt to the different cars all throughout my career. Because, um, you know, I felt that, that if you could adapt to your car, then you could get the most out of it on, on race day, you know, because even during during the race, like during the 500 miles, the track changes, things change during, during the, the races. And so you need to be able to adapt to those changes. And so if I could adapt to the different cars, which is why I went and raced IROC, it's why I went and raced the Daytona 24 hours, because they were different disciplines that you needed to adapt to. And I really felt that if I could adapt to it, that would make me a better driver at the Indy 500. It was all geared towards that, you know? And so, um, you know, that's what we did. And, and so, um, you know, it, it all had a lot to do with just dad making it fun, you know, and, and going out and enjoying it, so. Was it an obsession for you? <clears throat> Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I thought about it 24 seven, you know, I worked at it. Um, you know, racing was something that, that I just truly, truly enjoyed and wanted to do more of it all the time. So your first time, your first IndyCar race was 1982 at Riverside, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you do any, like, testing before that, or was that just, like, your first real? No, it was, it was my first. I mean, there was no test in the IndyCar. It was something that, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, Go get him, kid. <laughs> yeah, Rick Gallus is the one that really, uh, put up the money for me to run for the, the Jerry Forsythe. It was his car. And, um, um, you know, I had been running the Can-Am car that, that year in 1982. And so uh, we had run, you know, we had tested the Can-Am car and had run that at Riverside. So it, it really, uh, I knew the track and so on. And so uh, we showed up there on, and in the first practice session, and again, this is my dad, okay? I'm sitting on the wall. Practice is going to start here in about 15 minutes. He comes and sits on the wall next to me, and he can tell that I'm nervous as hell, okay? And he goes, hey, relax. It's just a, a race car. It's just another race car. So it's nothing special, you know? Just get in it and drive it and 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 go out there and have fun with it and and." You know, it's just a race car, so so treat it as such. It's nothing magical, you know, kind of thing. And 
And so that just calmed me right down. He was right. Just go out there and just just adapt to it and have fun and enjoy it and, and you know, sneak up on it and feel it out, all that kind of stuff, which, uh, which again, you know, having my dad there with those, just those simple words, just relaxed me. It was good. So, and then obviously the next year, your first year in yeah. Indy, and obviously, um, I mean, you'd been around Indy 500 for many years, but that was your first time, obviously experience it. Um, kind of what was your expectations um, leading into that race? And would you say that it kind of was what you expected or was it just a whole different experience of what you expected it to be? Well, I mean, you know, every day was a new day that, that my rookie year at Indy. And so I didn't, I didn't have any expectations at all. Okay. We just went out there and took one day at a time and, and just, um, just went out and did the best we could. And, and, uh, and so, there was no expectations. It was just every day was just a dream come true for me, you know? And, uh, and so it was, it was truly special. It was very special. Like pulling out onto the racetrack in an Indy car, the very first time was a dream come true. Just being able to drive out on, on rookie orientation. And then when we get back there for practice and qualifying to qualify for the Indy 500 was another dream come true you know, now we're qualified. And so walking out on race day morning, okay, uh, getting in the car, another dream come true, you know, that, that now I'm actually racing in the Indy 500. These are just, those are magical moments. And, and, uh, and so when those dreams came true, then the next dream was to win the Indy 500. And it took me a long time to win the Indy 500, a lot longer than, than I wanted it to. That's for sure. You know, I look at my dad and my uncle Bobby, they both won their, they both won the Indy 500 for themselves on the fifth try. It took them five wow. years to win. You know, uncle Bobby was a rookie in 63. He wins the race in 68. My dad's a rookie in 65. He, he wins the race in 70. Okay. And so for me, it took me 10 years. I, I was going, I'm never going to win this thing, you know? And, and so, uh, you know, we came so close in 89, you know, and, uh, but we didn't win, you know? And, and so that, that, that was the dream from, from that point forward was to win the 500. So. I think it was uh, the Bob and Tom show uh in 92 i think like you and shelly i believe were on there and you sang like a song about the race or something yeah. i don't remember what it was <laughs> and i remember thinking you know it, it's kind of cool to see how laid back he kind of is um like you're obviously it's very important to you but you weren't so uptight that you couldn't enjoy the moment dude i was and, uptight believe me i was uptight right for every hundred sure. and it was really shelly and 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 how all that came about was thursday was carb day and it had rained out carb mm -hmm. day got rained out and so we were on our on a rain delay okay and bob and tom was just a couple motorhomes down from mine doing their morning show and and Shelly goes, come on, let's go, out. let's go sing this song or whatever. And I go, you're crazy. No, no, we don't need, come on, it'll be good for you. Come on, let's go. And so I go, reluctantly, I go, oh, okay, we'll go down and 
talked to Bob and Tom. And, and so I just walked up, Shelly and I just walked up and they went, Al, come talk to us, da, 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 you know, because they were trying to fill time. Okay, because it was a rain delay. And, and so um, Shelly goes, let's sing the song. And so it was it was something that that her and Bobby Jr. Uh, over some beers down in Disney World come up with. And it was somewhere over the speedway and and that sort of thing. And it was really a, 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 an ode to Emerson taking me out in 89 and that kind of thing. And so... We had fun with it. It was good. So, yeah, I, and I thought it in in a lot of ways, I felt like it kind of helped set a tone, maybe in in a small way for you. Um, and it just and it was so nice, you know. And, and of course, that race we all know about that day, and and what a tough, tough, tough day that was, and oh, for wow. so many people. And then for it to end the way it did, you know, it was it they always say that people always remember the finish. Well, it, the finish was so great that a lot of people don't realize that's the same race that had all the crashes, I think. And, um, you know, and it's such a, you know, you got Bob Jenkins with the great call and, and all that. And it just, um, you know, it, it was it was really one of the Speedway's more magical moments. And then you get out of the car and, and say what, what I feel is maybe some of the most important words that's ever been said. You just don't know what indie means, right? And um, boy, really, it was, was such it, a. It was it was Jack and Root's question that um, that prompted that whole thing. He was he was you know the question he had asked, and I can't remember it right, but he just kind of left it so general, you know, on 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 everything, and and you know, I had spent my lifetime getting to that moment, to that that place. Mm -hmm which is Victory Lane in, in Indy. And and the only thing I could think, just think of it, you just don't know what this means to me. I mean, it's just, it's out there. I, and I can't find the words on, on what it does mean. And so the, it was really the way Jack Root said it, who, who you know, through the years, uh, Jack Root had become a good friend of mine. And so we were, we were finally made it and, and you know, we're there. And, and so... It was a special moment <clears throat> for him too. So, yeah. So you're talking about like how you know uptight you always were around the month of May. So obviously your first indie win, I would think that would just take a big weight off of your shoulders. And would you say like the years after that, you went into the race maybe a little more relaxed than normal? Absolutely. The answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, having that uh, that first win was was just so important to me, and and. Uh, and then we got it. And so uh, from that point forward, coming back to Indy, I was more relaxed. I, I, had, uh, I had accomplished my lifetime goal, you know, and uh, I never really thought about doing it again, being, being an all-time winner of the 500, you know. I mean, that, that, that was Dad and Uncle Bobby with the three and four times and, and you know, Quite honestly, it would be, since I won it, that was all done. You know, it'd be really nice if I could win it one more time to prove that that just wasn't a fluke, okay, you know, of winning it just the one time. And, and so, um, you know, joining Roger in, in 94 and, and uh, 
and having that that support and that effort in the in '94, you know, just made it, you know, extremely special to do it again and uh, and prove that it just wasn't a fluke on that first one. So. Right. You you said in um, we went and saw you speak uh, recently, and uh, you mentioned in there in, in your stories is which is in your book, which unfortunately I have not read yet. Uh, about you were you actually shame on you you need to read that. i know i'm terrible I'm <laughs> hey, a... i haven't read it either but i'm going to <laughs> i promise you i'll read it i, I do okay. i've got okay. i've got john andretti's book here to read too so i got i got to read it yep um you mentioned that you take a pay cut i mean a potential pay cut to go drive for roger because you had a better deal what was it just the fact that hey if i go drive for roger i know for a fact I am going to be in the very best equipment and I can make the rest of it work. I can get my money back some other way. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, would you, would you rather be paid a million dollars or give up the million on pay in order to have the finest equipment that money can buy and go out there and drive it in and, and have your best shot at winning the races, not just the Indy 500, but the races, the championships, you know, and not just for one year, but for several years, you know, which one would it be? And I, and it, that's, that was a no brainer. I mean, I want to be in the best equipment and so on. And, and that's what Roger means. That's what it means to drive for Roger is, is he gives you all the best opportunities to be the best that you can be. And that's really his secret with all of his companies, all of his people that, that, that work for him, you know, he wants them to be the best they can be. And he doesn't want um, to, to, to hold them back in any way. So, you know, he's in, a, he's in a position to do that. And I think that's what Roger has really worked hard at in his life is surrounding himself with good people and then giving them the tools that they need to go out to be the best that they can be. And I was watching the 94 race the other day, and they mentioned something about you had lost radio communication during the race, right? At the very beginning of the race, there was no radios at all during the whole race. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, the whole race, yeah. I think as soon as we pulled away, we checked the radios, and I think as soon as I pulled away, something happened, and no, no radios at all. So we had to go to the the signboards, which – which at that time, it wasn't against the rules. Today, it's against the rules. If you don't have any radio communication with your driver and back and forth, they black flag you and bring you in and make you fix the radio today. That's why you don't see any board men out on the front straightaway ever because there's no need for it. That you're either with radio communication or you're not. And back in that day, uh, that rule did not exist. So we had board men out there on the track. And so um, we did it all by, by using the, the board like they used to before they even had radios. <laughs> Obviously, I mean, you, you don't have the spotters. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess I would make it, I mean, I, I would think that would make it a lot harder, right? Or maybe less pressure. No, I, okay, I so, yeah. yeah the, Indy is, is pretty much a single groove racetrack, okay, mm-hmm. with the Indy cars. And so um, at Indianapolis, it's really 
the spotter can tell you that there's an accident around the corner. Like when you're going down the backstretch, you can't see turn four. Okay. And so all you can see is three. And so the spotter is really beneficial to see, to help you see around the corner. Now the spotters are, are, are really where they came from and so on was when IndyCar went to the high bank tracks and they're running two abreast all the way around the track, like Texas, for example. And so the spotter really became invaluable to let you know that there's a guy on your outside in your blind spot and, and that they go around the track that, that way. And so, um, you know, at Indy, it, it just, it, it didn't apply there because you didn't run too abreast all the way around there, you know, at that, it, at that time. So um, there was really no need for the spotter, I guess what I'm trying to say, uh, you know, and, and at Michigan, when we would run at Michigan, okay, <clears throat> Pocono is a single groove track, okay. Michigan, you'd run two abreast there, but not for very long. <laughs> okay. And so um, you really knew what was going on. You really didn't need the spotter. But, but once they went to the high bank, mile and a half, the IRL was formed. The cars had a lot of grip to them. They're running two, two abreast, two and three rows deep. Yeah, you need the spotter for that. So obviously 96, you know, we have the split, um, you know, obviously now the Indy 500 and the Michigan 500, I think is what they called it. Um, I mean, what, I guess I, I would think because Indy 500 meant so much to you, it just didn't feel right. Right. I mean, to compete in a race the same day as Indy 500 and, you know, they were, in, I guess, in a way trying to compare that to the Indy 500. Right. Yeah. You know, going into it, you know, when, when the IRL was formed and stuff, you know, Roger, it's in my contract that he, he goes to the Indy 500 and races, you know? And so when, when that didn't happen and we saw that happening, you know, Roger uh, talked to me and go, Hey, you know, I, I want you to drive for me. And, you know, I know it says it in the contract, but you know, it, it leaves me no choice. I can't go to the Indy 500. And so, um, I said, no, Roger, I want to stay with you. I want to stay with you. And, and, and I didn't realize how much it was going to truly affect me. Um, I didn't think it was a big deal because I'm driving for Roger Penske, you know, the best ride in the, in the world. And, and, but once we got out in the race and we're running, it was called the U S 500. Okay. And, we're at Michigan and, you know, somewhere during the race, like half distance or something like that, you know, I'm going down the backstretch and, and I, the thought occurred to me, I'm at the wrong racetrack. Okay. <laughs> I'm running 200 miles there and I'm at the wrong track. I should be at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and not at Michigan. And then, you know, that, um, yeah, that's when I truly, truly missed the Indy 500. And then it, it just, it, it got worse and worse and worse. The more we were away from it, you know, that, that, that empty hole inside me was, was just, uh, got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? So then when I, you know, 2000, I finally had to go back to the 500 and, and leave Penske racing and so on. So. Well, unfortunately it becomes a business decision at that point. Right. I mean, because there wasn't a ton of money in the RRL. I mean, it wasn't like they had as good contracts as what you had at, at Roger. And 
you know, I mean, it, and while your heart wants one thing, you, you got to be business savvy as well. And I mean, how long is this going to last? Is it going to last? Is it not going to last? I mean, that, that had to be terrible for guys like you and, um, you know, Michael. And I know somebody like PJ Jones, who his entire life he'd worked toward that. And then he gets to deal with Gurney and then they never, you know, then he and Gurney never run the speedway together. And, uh, you know, that, that had to be just terrible for you guys. It, the, the split really did hurt everyone involved. Um, it, it hurt IndyCar as a whole, okay? And uh, nobody was, was immune to the, to the hurt that, that that whole situation called. Uh, and so um, I can tell you, I'm sure I'm happy that it's all one unit now and it's all being pulled one direction. Mm. And, and now with, with Roger at the helm, of IndyCar, it's just going to get better and better and better. That's that's what I see. So, yeah. In fact, my only my only Uncle Bobby story that I have is surrounds that first race. And I, long story short, I'm in a, a hotel room. I'm actually I had actually fallen asleep on you know the Speedway motel room. I'd fallen asleep on the bed because I had been to Raceway Park the night before. And, of course, it's a rain delay, whatever it was that year. Maybe it was the following year, whichever year. And um, I hear somebody just talking and talking and talking. And I'm like, who is talking so much? Because I'm sleeping. And I wake up and it's your Uncle Bobby. He's just talking. And he's yeah. talking to Parnelli. Parnelli was in the room. And they were having a conversation. It, it was just funny, you know, because he just keeps talking and talking and talking. And uh, it's just, it, you know, everybody, I guess, that's been around has got an Uncle Bobby story if you've been around a little right. bit. And uh, that's mine. Yeah. So, <clears throat> obviously, I mean, you do, after 2000, you do the 500. Pretty much every year, I think minus 2005 up to 2007. Um, so, at that point, was it something where it was just like, you know, Indy meant so much, you just wanted to do it as long as you could? Yeah, well, I... I uh... <clears throat> I retired in 04 during, during the season. Okay. So 04 was, was the last really full season I did. Well, 03 was the last full season I did. And then, you know, uh, the situation that I had with Pat Patrick, I was driving for him. We had the, the Chevy engine, which was, which was uh, built by Ilmore, I think at the time. And really it was Honda and Toyota were dominating the, the, they, they had the power. And so, um, you know, we didn't, we just didn't have the engine for, for it. You know, I ran Texas in 04 and, uh, and I ran around there wide open the whole race and ended up two laps down. Okay. I mean, just nothing. It just was, was just slow, no power. And so we get to Richmond and it's the same thing again, you know, it just didn't have the power. So, so, you know, I wasn't having any fun anymore with, with all this kind of stuff. And, and so I retired and um, finished out the season with Pat Patrick as a spotter for, for the drivers that he put in there. And then, and then, you know, the O the, the O five Indy 500 rolls around and I'm not going to miss it, you know, and, and, uh, and lo and behold, I'm, race day on tv i'm watching it and i'm yelling at the tv 
you know, kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I missed it. I truly missed it, you know, it, and, but it was the only race that I missed. I didn't miss anything else. Okay. And, um, and so, uh, I came back and, and, uh, looked for a ride and got a, got a good one with Dennis Reinbold in in 06. And then, um, 07, I, I drove for AJ and, uh, and then, and then I was done that, that was, that, that was, uh, it. So I, I didn't miss the 500 anymore until actually when you, when, when race day rolls around and I'm at the track and they're saying, gentlemen, start your engines. And I go, man, that'd be just so cool to be a part of that and all that. And then they come around and the green flag falls and they go charging into turn one. And I go, I don't miss that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the, the way it is. So. Was there ever a moment uh, during those pre-races um, that, it, you know, cause for some people, obviously, this is the case where pre-race, uh, there's a moment for some people, the emotions of the month just really hit them. Was there, was it around Gentlemen Start Your Engines back home again in Indiana? Did you have any of those types of experiences or is it just always business? No, absolutely. Uh, every year I had those those strong feelings and those emotions, especially when Jim neighbors would start to sing back home again, you know, I mean, that, that really encompasses the, the whole thing and, and all the traditions. And yeah, no matter who you are, you definitely feel something, you know, every time that that happens and you're a part of it. So. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you drove many different cars, like you said, was there one car that you think, like, if you had to pick one car that was the most fun you ever had driving, um, would there be one car you would pick? Well, it all depends on, on, on the series, okay? Um, you know, in IROC, the, the fun car was the car that, that handled really good and ran really good, okay, because you drove a lot of different ones. Um, in the 24 Hours of Daytona, it, the, the special car was the 962 Porsche. You know, the, the, the Al Holbert team, the Lowenbrow Porsche, uh, that was a super special car. Um, as far as Indy cars were concerned with, actually, it was the, the, the car that I finished my, my stint with Roger, which was the PC-27, which was designed by John Travis. You know, that was a really unique and, and special car. And, you know, unfortunately, it didn't win any races, but it wasn't the car's fault that it didn't win any races. It was, you know, I still say it, the tires and the engine were just not up to par with the competitors. And, and so that's the only thing that kept it out of Victor Lane. You know, going back a few years in time, um, you, you run second to your dad in, in the championship by what, one point, something like that. 85. Now, of course, all these, you know, all racing families are extremely competitive. Um, for you, was that something you're like, man, I can't believe I lost to him. Like it meant a little more that you wanted to beat him or was it something like, Hey, I I'm so happy. It was my dad. No, I was so happy. It was my dad. Okay. Um, I was very upset that I lost the championship by one point to anybody. I lost right. the championship. Okay. It didn't matter. But what really soothed that over was the fact that it was my dad. And so if I'm going to lose to anybody, I'd rather it be my dad than anybody else. So did you, did you get to race against Bobby in 82? 
Because was that his yeah. last year? Or he ran eighty one. Was his last year eighty one? Yes. Yeah. yeah. His last year was eighty one. So. Uh, so you yeah. just missed out. Yeah, I just missed Uncle Bobby by that much. You know. Yeah. I saw what you said in a thing one time where you you loved. Uh, you want like you wanted to be like Uncle Bobby because he won so much, or, or something like that. Uh, I mean, what what kind of? I mean, it seemed like your dad and, and him had such different personalities. Like, like they were completely kind of seemed like one eighty of each other. What uh, what was it about Uncle Bobby that was just su- such an endearing guy? You know, to, well, to just the, the sheer desire and sheer work that he actually put into it. You know, he you kind of look at uncle Bobby and he really didn't have natural talent like my dad or Mario um, had just natural talent to, it just came out of him and, and, and myself, I had just that natural talent. Uncle Bobby didn't, he had to really work hard at it. And, you know, he was under the mindset uh, back during his whole career, you know, the cars weren't very reliable. Okay, so that right. there's a lot of mechanical failures, no matter if you treated your car nice or not, it it would break, you know, and it, it just, you know, you were lucky to, to, to finish. And so um, Uncle Bobby was on the mindset that, hey, if this thing's going to break and it's not going to go. The day, I want to be leading when it does. Okay, where my dad really didn't care about that. He wanted to to get to the end of the race. And so dad really, really took care of his equipment as best he could during the race and work himself to the point of, of, of being in position to win at the end of it. And so that's two different mindsets and it worked for both of them, you know, it worked for dad mm-hmm. and, and the mindset for uncle Bobby, it worked for him. And, and so I tried to, you know, observe this and look at it and try to, get the best of both worlds is what I was really trying to do. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'd work hard at, at, at qualifying and leading the race and all that, but I didn't put everything on that like uncle Bobby did. And so, um, you know, uh, like long beach, I'd go out there like, well, let's just talk about my qualifying. I think I had eight poles in my entire career. Okay. I just kind of figured if I was somewhere in the first three rows, I can win the race from there. Okay. So that's really what I really tried hard to do was, was, you know, be within a couple tenths or a half a second of the guy who's, who's on the pole. And if I could be there, then, you know, as the race unfolds and the conditions change and all that kind of stuff, you can actually go out there and race them. Okay, so that's that was really my mindset on 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 that. So, did you like, you know, and you're? I, I'm sure there's other people uh, who could answer this as well, but I can't think of too many. You started obviously in '82. The cars were much different than the cars you finished your career in. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular style? I mean, did you prefer the style of racing, and you know, through from '82 to you know, the mid nineties or, or did, or, you know, when the RL started or did you like that RL style of racing where the cars were locked down and they were so side by side and, and that sort of stuff? Well, the, you know, the, the formula changes. Okay. So 
So you can go back to the roadsters, you know, the the development of the race car, it changes. And so that's all that was going on from the beginning of my career to the end end of my career. I can tell you at the end of my career, the cars were so much safer than they were yes. at the beginning of my career. And so, you know, and, and the performance level and all that, it, it was, it was great, you know, to be a part of that, that change, which it changed over my dad's career when he first started him and Uncle Bobby to the end of their career, the, the, the cars were so much safer at the end of their career than at the beginning. And so, you know, that, that really how that went. And so to be a part of that, you know, growth, uh, you know, the, when I first started as a rookie, there was no computers, there was no data, you know, the, the, the engineer was not really called an engineer. He was called the chief mechanic, the crew chief. Okay. And so, you know, you'd come in and you'd be testing and you'd come in and, and they just, okay, Al, what's it doing? What do you need kind of thing? And so then you would relay what you needed. Um, Once the computer and the data hit, which was in the mid eighties, mid to mid, mid eighties, you know, they wouldn't really ask you how the car's feeling, <laughs> you know, they would, but they'd be plugging in the laptop and downloading all the data and, and then really going off of that rather than, 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 you know, of course they wanted to make you happy and, and relied on you, but not as much. You got less and less and less and less. So. Right. We had um, Willie T. Ribs on. Um, and- <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> And he and he told us a story. Of course, he's got lots of them. Um, and, and this specific story actually involved you, so we I guess we just want to confirm or deny it. But okay. so his rookie year, um, he says that you're the, he's at the drivers meeting with you, and you tell him you say, "Hey Willie, tomorrow the race and the you know pace laps. If you go into the um, you know first turn, he's a snake pit was first turn then, right, Scott? Mm-hmm. Yeah." Yeah. So if you go into the first turn and you look over into the snake pit, he goes and you told him that the woman will flash you as as you drive by. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's Willie. That's Willie. Uh, no. <laughs> he said he kept his he kept his seatbelts loose. And he said he was like looking. So <laughs> looking he can the see, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's Willie. <laughs> how did you guys, because it's obvious you guys are good friends. Uh, how did you guys develop such a, such a close friendship? Well, it actually began in the early eighties. I mean, we were teammates on Dan Gurney's Toyota effort when they were GTUs. Okay. The, okay. And so uh, we were teammates on that team. And then, and then, you know, we, we ran together in Atlantic's at, at Long Beach and, you know, our careers kind of paralleled each other. And so, you know, there, there was that time there that he went Trans Am, that I was in Indy cars and then he moved over to the Indy cars and, and, you know, I wanted to help him as much as I possibly could. And so, um, you know, Willie was, uh, was, was just, a, a, he's a special guy. And so we, when, when we ended our careers in, in, in racing, we kind of went away again. And then we came back together, uh, in 2014, when Tony Perella had the SVRA, um, uh, pro am, you know, at the speedway and we reconnected and we've been, uh, connected ever since, you know, so, uh, he's a good man. He, 
he, I, I love how he plays around with so much on interviews and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Is he kind of a, uh, is it kind of a deal where like maybe your personalities are so much a little different uh, that it's, it's again, such a good play off each other because, you know, he's going to say whatever he's going to say, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah, it is. The, it is the, the, the perfect yin and yang. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So we talked a little bit about your book when we started this, but so if someone wants to buy your book, um, where can they go to buy it? Yeah, they go to, uh, well, they can go to Amazon and buy the book from Amazon, or they can go to octanepress.com is the publishers and and get it straight from them. So, yep. I know you were doing a bunch of book signings, I guess, really the past couple months. You you think you're doing book signings probably in May at some point? I'm, my next book signing will be, believe it or not, at the Indianapolis airport Monday after the race. Oh. Huh is where I'm going to be. I, and I, from 11 to one, I'm going to be somewhere in the airport uh, doing a book signing there when, when uh, hopefully all the fans and stuff uh, are going to be leaving town and they're going to be walking right by us. So hopefully they'll pick up a book then. Has it been, um, has it been everything you wanted or has it been more than you wanted with this book? Because I would think a book like, I mean, it's such a, you know, it's to me you really it's you're you know if you do it right you expose yourself this is who i am and and so how is how is that for you you know how's that process been for you it was um you know writing the book i i, I did a lot of praying because i wanted to tell the truth you know uh there's a lot of of challenges that i've had in my life both on the track and off the track and I wanted to, to just tell the truth and, and, and get it out there, especially off the track with, with my, uh, uh, you know, illness with substance uh, abuse and substance use disorder, which is what I have. Okay. And so um, if I could share, you know, the, the truth on all that and, and just say, just how I worked through it and that sort of thing and, and how I'm working through it today. It's a daily challenge guys. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. And that'll be that way for the rest of my life. And, and if I could help one person, you know, go ask for help. That was my biggest thing. It, it you know, people looked at you and said, Al, you need help. And I, no, I don't need any help. I'm good. You know, kind of thing. And, and, and I did, I needed help. And, right. uh, and asking for help is was was one of the biggest challenges that that I sure. ever had, and 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 so once you do, then it's like breaking through, and, and you go and you, you you accept it and that sort of thing, and and so uh, for for the people out there, you know, just you know, ask for help. It's it's not that you know these are these are mental illness issues that 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 a lot of people have, a lot of people, and so uh, how do they do it? They, they take that first step, let's say, and ask for help. And if they can do that, then they're on their way to having a better life. And if I could share that and so on. Um, and like I said, if we could help just one person, then it was worth going out on a limb or what have you and talking about it. So, you know, that, that brings me to something I, I wanted to ask you and something I've actually always wanted to ask you since an incident. And please tell me if I get any part of this wrong. Uh, you're 
last major incident, uh, 2019, uh, you go to a, uh, event for the team. Is that correct? After making the race, um, and you, uh, have too many drinks or whatever happens and you go to leave. And did anybody in that room, cause everybody knew that you had issues before. Did anybody say, Hey, I'll, let's get you a cab. Let's get you an Uber. Let's get you something. No, it wasn't a team deal at all. Okay. I was okay. home drinking by myself. I went to, to see a friend somewhere else. I was alone. I was by myself. And so, you know, and then okay. it, 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 it went further when I got to the friend's house and so on. And, uh, and no, I mean, um, you know, the friend said, Hey, you know, why don't you not, drive or whatever. I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm good. You know, I'll, I'll make it home. It's And I didn't, you know? And so again, um, you know, that's what happened. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, anything other than that, the, the friend really had no choice <laughs> in right. the matter. You know, they tried, uh, but they didn't have a choice in the matter. So that, so, was, so I got, I, I misunderstood the story. So obviously it wasn't as I had, been the to believe yeah no it but, wasn't with but, any team at all it wasn't it was no we we had made the race it was a good day and uh, and so okay on. yeah but your friend said hey man let's not do this but you're you're an adult man you you, you can't be stopped you know um i made the wrong decision to get behind the wheel and that's where it, right. that's where it lies and and so um you know uh rather you're sick or not you know the bad decision is getting behind the wheel of a car when you're inebriated. That's the bad decision. Sure. You know, so, um, you know, well, being ill and so on, that's really not a bad decision that, that there's no decision there. You're, you're, you're either sick or, or you're not kind of thing. And if you're sick and, um, then, you know, you really, you have no choice, but the choice to get behind a wheel is the wrong choice. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, and I, I, I am, can never throw stones because when I was younger, I did it myself. You know, I, I quit drinking several years ago, but, um, but I mean, I had gotten into a car and drove many times in my life when I should never have. We all have. Yeah. Um, so, and I want to give you a second to kind of talk. I know you're involved with a lot of different, like, um, I guess charities or, um, you know, you know, stuff like that. I want to give you a moment to kind of promote, you know, some of the stuff you're involved with. Yeah, no, what we're doing now is a true blessing. Um, I'm with a, a team that's a startup team. Uh, Mark McAllister is the owner of the team and it's called Future Star Racing. We race in uh, SCCA Formula 4 and Formula R, uh, which is Formula Regional. And so um, we go to the SCCA races. We, we we're really the, the next step out of go-karts with the kids. And so our drivers are like 16 to 19 years old and uh, just at the beginning of their career. And so it, it's, it's so gratifying to be able to pass on what was so freely given to me by my dad and Uncle Bobby and so on. And, and, so, and that's really all I'm doing is just passing on what I had been taught at that age and and it's so cool to to go to the track and and watch them develop through the year and and like you know we've got 
David Burkett in our Formula Four card this year, uh, young African American guy, and uh, and the the change from him at the beginning of the year to just now, okay, um, has been remarkable. You know, I mean, the confidence that that he he's now showing in driving and that sort of thing, and and just uh, it's just so gratifying to be a part of it, and and I feel so blessed that Mark McAllister has looked my way, you know, and said, yeah, Al, I want you to come and, and, and be a part of this team and so on. And, and, uh, so, you know, I'm director of competition, I'm driver coach, uh, I'm team manager now. <laughs> and I came on as just a driver's coach, you know, and, and so it's evolved into something that, that, you know, now I'm, 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 uh, ordering Fuel, ordering airs, uh, working with the mechanics, you know, getting them hotels. Uh, and then when do we get to the track? I'm helping the drivers and so on. It, it's just it's just a true blessing to be a part of. And, and I just thank Mark McAllister and, and honestly, Jesus Christ for for allow for, for letting me having this opportunity to do this. And then and then on the other side of it. Uh, the Wings and Wheels Foundation is something that Mark McAllister has started to what his vision is truly is to help kids that uh, don't have the funding to go to that next step. And so um, he's got two what we call scholarship cars that, that David Burkett is in the one. Uh, Matt Clark is a young Canadian driver from uh, uh, from Canada. And so he's in our FR car and he's already won one of the races this, this year. And, uh, Mac is just a super driver, a super good, talented kid. And so, um, really Mark is, is, is providing them with the opportunities to be the best that they can be and, uh, and go on with their career up the ladder. So, um, yeah. It, and then, you know, the Wings and Wheels Foundation, you know, that's what that's all about is, is helping that vision that everybody, anybody can be a part of to, to help these kids um, who, you know, for whatever reason, socially, economically, they don't have the opportunities to go up that ladder. And, and the Wings and Wheels Foundation, Mark McAllister is providing that, so... Well, and, and as you know, I mean, you, you had a son that, that tried to race and, uh, and I assume is probably some monetary issues there. I mean, as with all absolutely, drivers. it was totally funding that stopped my son out from, from going up that ladder. Yeah. You know, um, we, we've had, uh, several young drivers on the show. We've had Flynn Lazier, Jack Miller's son, uh, Jackson Lee and Jagger Jones, uh, which is, Parnelli's grandson. Uh, we've had them all on the show and they're all trying to make their way through the road to Indy and that sort of thing. And um, what kind of advice can you give to younger drivers uh, who are just trying to come through? Even Say they have funding. Let's just say somebody has the funding. Right, there's still, right. there still has to be advice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it just comes down to, this is a tough business. Uh, you got to work at it 24 seven. And so you have to persevere, never give up because you never know what uh, God has in store for you tomorrow. And so, right. uh, 
just never give up. Just stay in there and, and just keep following your dreams. And that's what it's really what it's all about. Yeah, I, I think that's great words of wisdom right there. Um, obviously, your, your daughter has a foundation as well. And mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that. that. Yeah, the, the Cody Unser First Step Foundation. Cody is my oldest daughter. Uh, when she was 12 years old, she was playing basketball on a Friday on the next day on Saturday, she woke up, she's, she's a paraplegic. And, and, and what, what happened to her was the, was called, is called transverse myelitis, which is an autoimmune disease that a virus got in her spinal cord. Her own immune system went to kill the virus. It did but it took out two inches of her spinal cord at the same time. Oh, and wow. so uh, it was devastating for my daughter to, for me to see my daughter just, you know, wake up one morning and she's paralyzed. And, and, and so um, her and her mom started a foundation, you know, the, the, the Cody Unser first step foundation. And, and so uh, to bring both quality of life, and awareness to her disease and and what ended up happening they, they they loved cody loved to go scuba diving and so uh when she is under the water down there she feels free she doesn't feel handicapped at all and so uh they were trying to to bring uh veterans back who who have um you know had their legs or, or their illnesses, you know, where they're paraplegic. And they discovered that with, especially with the veterans, that it helped their P PTSD uh, by going scuba diving. And it's had something to do with the pressure of the water and, or just that feeling of, of the freedom that they got by scuba diving into the water. And, and so uh, it helped with other illnesses that they had. And so, you know, Cody's done, done great things with, with her foundation as far as helping other people. Oh, that's so awesome. Well, um, you have anything else, Scott? I do. I, I, uh, I'll take it easy on you. Uh, cause this, this one question I typically would throw out about five or six names. I'm not going to do that to you. Um, I, I do want to ask this question a little different way than I normally would. I, I would typically, I would give a list of drivers and just have a, uh, see what kind of, you know, say how this person was to race with or something like that. Uh, I'm going to change this up a little bit uh, for you and just say who for you was um, maybe your toughest competitor or for somebody that maybe that you, that is the most that you really enjoyed racing, something, something along those lines. I was so fortunate to be in the generation of drivers that I was in. Okay. So I got to race against Emerson Fittipaldi. I got to race against Nigel Mansell. I got to race against uh, Mario Andretti, my dad, uh, Gordon Johncock, Johnny Rutherford, AJ Foy, uh, Michael Andretti. Bobby Rahal, Rick Mears, Danny <laughs> Sullivan. I, I got to race against all these mega talented drivers. And you never could pick just one guy that, 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 that you went, you know, because they were all so good. And it just happened just on that particular day is when they would shine. So that's who I would concentrate on that particular day. 
because um, like if I only worried about my dad trying to beat my dad, six or seven other guys would go by me on the other side. Okay. And so, so it was, I was just so fortunate to be able to, to just, you know, uh, and it was so competitive because, you know, any particular day, any one of these guys would be the guy to beat. Okay. And so I worked at all of them. I, I just, you know, whoever was fast, you just concentrate on that guy and go out there and follow him and find out why is he fast and where is he fast and where, where you need to get quicker to, to, you know, um, get on their weakness or what have you. So that's what, that's how I worked at it. Did you build a mental notebook on all these guys? Like, uh, you know, like, Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You had to. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, because we raced so much, you know, together and and for so many years there that that you started seeing, you know, where they were really strong and where they weren't that kind of thing. And and, uh, yeah, yeah. It just worked at it. Yeah. I, I kind of lied to you. Since you said his name, I, I'm going to ask you about one. That's Rick Mears. What mm-hmm. to me, I thought Rick Mears. I, I think the two people I think of when I think of IndyCar, one of them is you, and the other is Rick Mears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then the Michael would be in that same group, right? Uh, but what was Mick like? What was Rick like? <laughs> <laughs> Rick is so quiet. He's, he's just, you know, and, and he's so talented and, and just, uh, worked at it hard and, 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 um, you know, he truly, truly concentrated on the Indy 500, you know, like we all did. And, and that's where he really shined. Even when he was a rookie, uh, you know, he, he went out there and, and took a non ground effects car in 1979 and put it on the pole where all the other cars were ground effects cars. And if you watch his qualifying run, he's so loose. I mean, I don't know how he, how he did it, but, but he did. And that, and that's just Rick, you know, I mean, he, we we used to, when we were talking, when I joined Penske racing and, and he was, you know, uh, my mentor or whatever with, with driver coach or what have you. Okay. And we used to sit and we, we would talk about, you know, uh, Am I, if I was, he asked me, are you a right front driver or right rear driver? Okay. So just think about being on an oval. Do you want it to push or do you want it to be just a little bit loose? Okay. And I, I want my back end solid. So I'm a right front driver where, where I want that to break away and be, and be confident with the back end. And Rick was a right rear driver where he wanted that front end positive. And where it was just a little bit on the nervous side. Well, you got to just stay up on the steering wheel so much when the car's like that. You're, you're risking quite a lot. And, but that's the way Rick drove. Okay. And, uh, and that's what, what made it for him, his style. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, you know, Rick is, is super competitive, super smart. You know, he worked at it just like we all did. Rick, I, I thought Rick had that amazing capacity to pull something out that he hadn't showed you before um, when he needed to. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, like we talk about the 84 Indy 500. Okay. And by the time we got to half distance, there was only three guys on the lead lap. It was Mears, myself, and Tom Sneva. And so um, I I got by Tom, and then I was chasing Mears, and I was chasing him down, and I was catching him. And I'm really working hard at it, right? <laughs> you know, because I want to lead this thing. And uh, uh, we're, we're at about 120 laps or something like that. And I tell him, I was catching you. I had you covered. He goes, no way. I hadn't showed you anything yet. I was just cruising, you know, running the laps off. And I go, no way. I had you. So that's how it goes back and forth. But no, Rick, it's true. He doesn't show you until the end of the race what he's got, especially if he's if he's leading, you know, if he's leading that thing, Rick's going to pull something out like he did with Michael Andretti the year. That's right. All that happened. Okay, that that deal right there. I couldn't believe when when Mike when Michael passed him, I thought that's it. That's That's it. Right. I thought the same thing. And when Rick drove by him doing the same. Same exact thing. I thought, and then left wow. and then checked yeah. out. You know, I mean that. that was, and, yeah. I mean, as a driver, and tell please tell me if I'm wrong. As a driver, that has to be almost demoralizing. It is when you made <laughs> such a beautiful pass, a daring pass, and, and Michael is as daring as there ever was. Yeah. What's demoralizing just, is the fact that you know he didn't show his cards until the end, and then he checks out, and then you lose the race. That's demoralizing, right? Okay? Where you yeah. really thought you had a shot at it, and then he comes along and just just yeah. takes you out, you know. And so yeah, that's that was to me yeah. that that's that's one of the most amazing sequences I've ever seen here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my last question is, and it's, uh, we always ask to keep it as family friendly as possible. Uh, we always ask for a good racing story. Anybody that's been in the sport for a long time, do you have a good racing story you can kind of share with us? Cause there's, you know, obviously out of racing, there's always something that goes on. Yeah. The, you know, the one that kind of comes to mind at my rookie year at Pocono, we're at Pocono 500 and my rookie year and we're, we're under caution and we're about halfway in the race and we're under caution and, and, um, uh, uh, Gordon Johncock pulls, well, it was Foyt. Foyt pulls up next to me on the, going down the back stretch, and he goes, turn two outside. And I go, okay. So I look turn two, which is the, which is the kink. Okay. And I'm looking at the track and I'm just looking and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. So we get back around and I slow down and force AJ to come up next to me. <laughs> and, and he goes, turn to you outside. And I go like this. I put my hands up like, what are you talking about? You know, and I look again. And, and so come back around. I slow down again to go, what's going on? Well, now Gordon Johncock's checking all this out. And so he pulls up next to me, passes AJ, pulls up next to me, goes, turn two outside. And, and I'm looking <laughs> and I'm looking and there ain't nothing out there. Okay. Nothing out there. So, um, they just finally, both of them just give up on me. They go, you don't know what you're doing. They just both gave. So we go back to green again and we're running. And, and then near the end of the race, we have another caution. And so I, I'm thinking about this. What the hell is out there? You know, and I finally, I finally looked up and saw the motorhomes 
and there's a girl with a bikini on the top of the motor and dancing <laughs> around in a bikini. And I'm going, those guys, they're looking up in the grandstands at all the girls <laughs> under caution. They're not paying attention to the track or whatever. And I'm going, oh, my God. So That's I learned so a lesson about those boys at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and Willie T, uh, Willie T would have really enjoyed that one. Oh, yeah. He, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, Al, um, we really appreciate you know you taking the time and talking to us. It's an absolute honor, like I said earlier, to have you on. And yeah, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having us, and I hope everything works out for the best. Hey, Al, thank thank you so much. You know, you're obviously your your background is somewhat in sprint car type racing. This. Do you ever go to any of the local tracks in Indiana from time to time? I haven't. Time? I haven't. Um, you know, I never raced it at Terre Haute and, and I've, I've gone no. to the track just, just to see it. Not, not for an event, but uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get out sometime and, and uh, maybe hook up with Tony Stewart and go to one of his sprint car races and, and so on. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it's been an absolute honor for me. Uh, thank you so much. I, I, as a kid, and we're not that much age difference. I mean, I'm 53, you know, so we're roughly the same age. Uh, yeah. I just remember looking at you and saying, man, this guy is unbelievable. And, and, uh, well, thank you. and uh, I just, uh, I want to say thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. You got it. Thanks for having us on. Yep. Thanks, thank Al. you. Okay. You got Bye. it. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.